Well, I think we do have to thank Katie Katrina Powell for, for organizing this conference. Thank you, without whom, you know. Um, this is the second one of these conferences, and I can't believe I've enjoyed it as much as the first, but I have. And um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Sandy Stone to you, Dr. Alucare Roseanne Sandy Stone, who, if we favored the word original, might be someone we applied it to, but let, let us just think about somebody who has been the foundation of transsexual studies, someone who has worked very, very extensively and all over the world in performance, in art installation, in, in the, her critique of the academic world. I like to think that those of us should aspire to be necessary gadflies in the academic flesh. And I do believe that Sandy could be a model for us in that way, who is not only inside theorizing and thinking about pedagogy, but is also not there and critiquing it at the same time. Perhaps that's the same thing, but you can figure it out. Um, she has written so many books. Um, an early one, The Empire Strikes Back, Post-Transsexual Manifesto was the work really that, that was the foundation, I think, of transsexual studies, yes. So um, we are very honored. Uh, the War and Desire of Technology at the End of the Mechanical Age, an Electronic Culture, Technology, and Visual Representation. And if I listed all of her performance installations and her science fiction books and all of the other various forms of work she does, you wouldn't be able to see her perform today, which was what we were going to do. But she does theorize technology through her conception of body and identity in a most articulate and often out outrageous kind of, kind of way. And it has been incredible fun working with her in addition to in, in addition to all the other kinds of admiration that we have. She is um, a professor at European Graduate Studies in Switzerland. She uh, has been at U and continues a position with UT Austin. She's a senior artist at the Banff Center. And I think really importantly, the founder of ACT Lab, which is a project, a new media project started at the University of Texas 20 years ago, which now also has a branch at the European Graduate Studies play, um, offer. I want to mention too that, that she actually started her, her, or one of her careers as a um, sound engineer. And when you look at the people with whom, for whom she has done sound recording and engineering. They include Velvet Underground and Jimi Hendrix. So there, this is someone who has been there as well. So putting together this, this little process and helping with it has been a great, great honor for all of us. I think that I'm going to stop there because we really do need to hear from, from Sandy, but let me just thank her publicly for being here with us and offering so many kinds of perspectives. Thank you, Sandy. Hello, everyone. Um, sorry, I lost my speech on the plane. I'm going to make it now. Um, 
I really want to talk today about trans, is transistors, transnationalisms, maybe transportations, trans transliterations, trans world airlines. Um, what should I start with? Oh yeah, this book, queer queer art of failure. I wanted to a radical take on disciplinarity in the university that presumes the breakdown of the disciplines, anti-disciplinarity. Um, maybe, hold on. I think Nancy Fraser can be good here um, to help clarify the situation and the political prospects that it presents, It the situation. Um, I propose really to distinguish two broadly conceived, analytically distinct um, understandings, really, of injustice, exploitation, really, transisting, and I'm sorry, could you please silence your, your phones? It's, it's really disruptive, I'm already. Maybe some, please, if you could just turn that off. Bell hooks, really, should be included. More and more, it really is just, is there a problem? Can we just go ahead with the, these phones? If something is, I really can't, I really don't know what's, I really am confused by what's going on here exactly. If we could please just, can we, can we please, I can't continue this. I'm not gonna be able to continue this. I cannot continue this if, Whoa, 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 whoa. What kind of behavior is this? This is absolutely ridiculous. Don't you see where we are right now? This is, I can't believe it. We're going to have to settle this in a far more sophisticated way. Far more sophisticated. What? Iron theory. Iron theory. Iron theory. Let's see what we can do. It is time to play Name That Theory. <laughs> yeah, is it? Yes, it is yes. time to play. This Thank is you. really quite disturbing. I was, yeah, wasn't it? <laughs> Name That Theory. Now, as you know, the object of this game is for the contestants to properly identify the name of the theorist that um, we'll be quoting. Okay, now we'll have to begin at the moment for the contestants to identify themselves. I'm Sandy Stone. I'm Sandy Stone. Actually, I, I'm Sandy Stone. I think I'm Sandy Stone. Okay, let's go. All right, now we're gonna have to begin then. I mean, clearly we're going to have to settle this matter by seeing who can correctly identify the name of the theorist that is being quoted. Okay, the first one. <laughs> Round one. 
Okay, here we go. Let's see who knows their stuff. The main trouble with cyborgs, of course, is that they are the illegitimate offspring Oh, no, no, I, uh, no, no. Of militarism and patriarchal capitalism, not to mention state socialism. Who do you think? I think it's Mitt Romney with his illegitimate bastards. No, actually, it's, 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 it's Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> they aren't even theorists, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, round two. <laughs> Thanks, babe. You're looking good. All right. Women excel at the arts of plating and weaving owing to the growth of the pubic hair that conceals the genitals. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Stop ringing. Bing. <laughs> yes, this time it's Mitt Romney, right? No, you can't just say that to everyone. Yeah, no, no. I, know. I know who this is. I have this. Pubic hair, it has to be Clarence Thomas. No. Oh. Good guess. Audience? <laughs> Round three. Shut up. <laughs> you shut up. Yes. See if you can get this one right. We still don't know who the real Sandy Stone is. I contend that the problem with transsexualism would be best served by morally mandating it out of existence. Name that theorist. Sarah Palin. No. Wrong. Rick Santorum. Rick Santorum. Nice guess. Nice guess. Audience? Audience? Nice guess. Okay, for round four. Oh, you're looking really good there. Okay. When Batman and Catwoman try to get it on sexually, it only works when they are both in their caped crusader outfits. Naked heterosexuality is a miserable failure between them. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, heterosexuality, naked, Larry Flint. Larry Flint, no, sorry, got that wrong. Yep. Robin. Good one, yes! Yes, Robin would be the one to know. But the <laughs> I don't believe this. This no, is not, I just, this is not really. This isn't even Can real you theory. believe these panelists? Like, what this do they know? Is rigged. This is this supposed to be a place where people actually know about it's theory. theory. It's absolutely. I can't. I, I'm ashamed, frankly. This is ashamed. no good. This is no now, good. I, don't I think like the this. only thing we could do here is return to our mentor, Donna Haraway, under circumstances like this. And this is what her. Yes, yes. Stop that craziness over there. <laughs> Who said, if you can't say it, and you can't show it, and you can't write it, sing it. Hi. We just came in and saw the cats and dogs out there. They're really cute. <laughs> I'm so glad you had that display for us. Um, we're junk DNA. And I think we're going. Okay. Two, three, four. When marimba rhythms start to play, dance with me, make me sway. Like a lazy ocean hugs the shore, hold me close, sway me more. Like a flower bending in the breeze, bend with me, sway with ease. When we dance, you have a way with me, stay with me, sway 
Other dancers make me on the floor Dear, but my eyes will see only you Only you have that magic technique When we sway, I grow weak I can hear the sound of violins Long before it begins Make me thrill as only you know how Sway me smooth, sway me now Make me thrill as only you know how Sway me smooth, sway me Try one of these. I'm going to have to put this down eventually, though, so it would be really good if this one works. Anyway, good afternoon. I'm not the real Sandy Stone, but I play one on TV, so I'll, I'll see what I can do. Um, this is a conference about... Uh, hello. <laughs> this is a conference about uh, gender, uh, technology, identity, all those... Wonderful things. Take my laugh, please. Yeah, put it back. On the belt, on the right there. That's why I wear loose pants. Thank you. Uh, We rehearsed this, believe it or not. Ah, that's better. Okay, all right, I'll use this one for a minute, then I, uh, then I switch away from it. Um, gender and technology and, and um, physical objects that, that we use, you know, through we use to either define or express or uh, or somehow access gender. So I used to work for uh, the National Institutes of Health, and um, we uh, we used to fool around with the ideal object for studying gender and technology, and bodies and desire and all that sort of thing. You can probably imagine what it is. It's cats, right? The perfect thing. Um, cats not only make great lab uh, material, but they're also wonderful for studies of uh, gender and technology. I had a cat uh, in the lab that I used to uh, study at the National Institutes of Health. We were trying to figure out how hearing works, and it happens that humans and cats have very similar kinds of hearing. So if you put non-damaging electrodes into a cat's ear, you can measure um, the uh, electrical impulses, and what you're measuring will look very much like what you would get if you were measuring that of a human. So um, I was doing that with uh, a, a cat there named Lucy, if it matters, and Lucy was a cute little white cat with one green eye and one blue eye, and uh, you, you know, you never knew whether it was stop, go, stop, go, whatever she was putting out. 
Um, and uh, I fooled around with, uh, I was taking measurements from her one day in the lab. It's not painful for the cat, believe it or not. They're uh, very rugged for this. You put the electrode in and it remains in there and you can bring out the wire and attach it to a collar and you can connect that wire to an electronic apparatus. So uh, I was taking measurements from Lucy's ear one day and I'm watching my, my meters and a fly flew into the lab and landed on Lucy's nose. And Lucy shook her head very violently and the, cat, the uh, fly flew away. And apparently the electrode inside her ear moved because all of a sudden I saw on the screen that we were seeing something else coming out of her ear. And I thought, oh dear, we're going to have to replace that electrode. So normally you listen to the nerve impulses to hear how crisp they are. It makes a little popping sound. So I put the headphones on to find out how far the electrode had moved. And lo and behold, the electrode had moved to the very base of the cochlea and it was now resting on the entire nerve bundle. And the result of that was that I could actually hear what Lucy was hearing through her ear as if her ear was a microphone. Now this had never happened before and I was stunned. I thought, wow, Lucy, this is amazing. And Lucy you know, looked up at me and went, what? And I thought, well, okay, now we can really have a little fun with this. Um, so I put a second electrode in her other ear. I'm not kidding, this is not painful for the cat. Unlike us, we have these big heavy bones back here. This is called the bulla. Um, our inner ear is inside that. With a cat, a cat has a huge jaw muscle called the masseter muscle, which completely surrounds the uh, bulla. And consequently, a cat doesn't need anywhere near as thick a bone as we do. In fact, the bone surrounding their inner ear mechanism is only the thinness of paper. So you can poke uh, right through it with a pin and you can put an electrode down in there and you let the muscle go. And um, uh, the, the cat really doesn't notice and I've, I've observed uh, a lot of cats doing this. So the following day, I did a bilateral implant on Lucy and I went to my workbench and I created a little FM transmitter about the size of a postage stamp which I then put on Lucy's collar. And the following night I came in at midnight. And I came into the lab and nobody else was working. It was very dark and mysterious and spooky. I went down a long gray corridor lit only by little pools of light from the recessed spotlight fixtures in the ceiling. And when I got to the room where Lucy was, she was all ready to go. She was anxious to see me and she jumped into my arms. And I said, Lucy? And she went, no. And I said, we're going to do a little experiment tonight, you and I. Now before I get into that, I should mention that um, as you probably know, um, well, first of all, this study was about deafness in cats. Now, those of you who may have a cat living with you probably know that it's very difficult to tell if the cat is deaf <laughs> or if it is merely ignoring you. 
Now we had the same problem and we cast around and went through the literature and uh, uh, lots of other things trying to figure out what to do about this problem and we finally found a mysterious and wonderful substance from Finland called fiskafas, which is a mixture of raw white fish, very fresh, ground up in heavy sweet cream. And it turns out cats will do backward somersaults for this stuff. So it was very easy to train the cats so that you knew when they were hearing whatever signal you were putting out. So that's why I was not worried about uh, the success of this particular experiment. So I got Lucy and uh, I took her, instead of into the lab, I took her to the back door of our building at NIH, which uh, was in Bethesda, Maryland, and which opened up uh, onto a big grassy field. This will tell you how long ago this was, a big grassy field in Bethesda. Uh, and I put Lucy down at the edge of the field and she looked up at me and said, what do you want? I said, well, just go play in the grass. And she went off and disappeared in the grass. And I went back up the corridor and into my lab and sat down and put on the headphones and turned on my FM radio and I tuned Lucy in. Quite suddenly, in my headphones, I was hearing exactly what Lucy was hearing outside in the field, except I was hearing it from Lucy's perspective. Cats don't hear like humans. Their acuity is much, much greater, and they hear a much wider range of frequencies, and I was hearing some of that. So the wind in the grass sounded like a bamboo forest banging together. And the sound of Lucy's paws on the dirt was like the sound of hobnail boots walking. The sound of the wind was like a hurricane. And just for stereo, I could hear a car go by in the background from left to right very slowly till it got out of sight. And then it was just the wind and the insects in the grass. And then, off in the distance, we could hear something else. A small animal, a little mammal, running around looking for food, scratching a little bit and then moving on, scratching and then moving on. A mouse. I was sure of it. And after a while, we moved closer. The mouse was upwind and was completely unaware that we were there. And we came closer and closer, very, very slowly. The mouse remained blissfully unaware that we were coming closer. And eventually, after about five minutes of this, we were about a meter away from this little mouse, still completely innocent, unaware of our being there. And then we crouched. A very quiet, liquid sound of muscles tensing. That strange, snicking sound of claws coming out and anchoring into the ground. And after a moment, to gather all our forces, we spread!
sprang. And the mouse screamed. And flesh crunched, bones crunched. And the mouse stopped screaming. And I ripped off my headphones and sat there in my lab going, suddenly very back in the moment, looking at my instruments and under the light and hearing the air conditioning and thinking, what have we just done? <laughs> We've killed a small animal. And then I thought, oh my God, what I have here is an experimental animal loose in a field in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, <laughs> reality has a way of being abrupt and hard. And I ran back down the hall, and I threw up in the door. I thought, given a few hours, maybe I can find Lucy out there. And I began madly running around, yelling, Lucy, Lucy, Lu And there she was, sitting right in front of me, looking up at me with an expression of incredible pride <laughs> on her little kitty face, holding in her mouth my portion of the kill. Two kidneys and the tail. So that's, you know, if you want to talk about uh, gender and technology and identity, I mean, I didn't quite get to the gender part in that little thing about technology and identity, a little story about how Sandy became a cat for a few minutes. Um, but let me see if I can bring in the, uh, the other part. Um, the field of neurology was uh, actually invented not far from here during the uh, American Civil War. And the uh, doctors who did that work uh, did it by studying uh, soldiers who were in that war who had been damaged by virtue of gunshots or worse, and uh, their nerves had been cut in various ways, and so their perceptions of their body, uh, of their individual bodies had changed based upon uh, how their nerves had been cut. Um, John Hewlings Jackson, who was the first doctor to examine these people, developed a concept of the uh, neurological arrangements of the body. In particular, he discovered that whatever their actual condition was, every soldier had an internal brain representation of the surface of their body, which he called the body image. And it looked like a little homunculus, a small person, even if uh, the body was not intact. That little homunculus appeared to be intact. Uh, but it couldn't express itself on the body because of damage to nerves. And Jackson was very interested in how uh, the shape of that homunculus was affected by what had happened to the external body. Uh, he found that after a while, soldiers who had lost the use of their legs um, discovered that the homunculus changed. It lost its lower half. That was the first understanding of the way in which the inner representation maps itself on to the surface of the body. Now, that's kind of fiction and fact from Sandy Zalmanac from uh, American history and from the history of neurology. 
we can play with that in different ways. In particular, the way in which the fact that the, the homunculus largely remained intact for a fair amount of time, uh, no matter how much damage you did to the body, led to the theory of the imaginary limbs, which we now call the phantom limb. And the phantom limb, of course, was an inward representation of uh, a body part which was no longer present, say, which had been blown away by a cannonball. Uh, but that body part could express itself to the person by means of an imaginary mapping, which happened quite automatically, between the homunculus and the missing part, so that you would imagine that you had such a limb, even if uh, you didn't. And uh, that um, imaginative limb is so tenacious that uh, if, you, if you wear a prosthetic, an important part of wearing that prosthetic is having the phantom limb emerge and fill it so that you've recuperated the uh, prosthetic, the uh, uh, real physical prosthetic with the imaginal, the interior body in such a way that they merge and that you recuperate the sense of the complete whole body even if only for a little while. Um, in fact, when you take off the um, prosthetic at night, the phantom limb frequently retracts and uh, when the person goes to put on the uh, prosthetic in the morning, they may have to slap the stump or massage it in order to get the phantom limb to extrude again in order for the body to feel complete in the uh, prosthetic. So, what can we do in order to make use of that for our purposes here, gender, sexuality, technology? Well, let me tell you a little story about um, a map of the body which I use in my work. So let's take John Hewlings Jackson's idea of the homunculus, the body, the neurobody, let's call that. And uh, let's think about the surface of our body, and let's call that surface of the body the topological body or the topo body. Now, if we imagine or if we postulate a third body, which is in between those two, okay? Go with me for a minute here. And we'll call that third body the translator body. And that translator body will operate like a switchboard so that you can plug in different parts of the brain to different parts of the surface of the body. So that, say, if I could do that, then when I touch myself here, instead of unproblematically feeling that touch here, because I'm not, right? Goes to the brain, comes back. Um, if I were to remap the translator body so that I touch myself here, but I feel it over here, say, that would be an interesting thing to be able to do, that kind of neuroplasticity, that ability to play with surface of the body. So that is useful to us uh, in, in the following way. Suppose we were able to use this imaginal idea for the purposes of sexuality and pleasure. I mean, what better, right? So now, in, in the real world, there are wings of neurological hospitals where they retrain people who have lost uh, important parts of their body, particularly injuries of the sixth cervical vertebrae, which is this one up here, so that your entire body has lost all sensation. 
Um, you can train people like that frequently to experience um, sexual pleasure and have orgasms by virtue of learning to attribute that kind of sexual sensitivity to other parts of the body. Frequently, the top of the head, which is rarely used for anything else, so it's kind of virgin territory to be remapped for this. But for our purposes here, I want to show you that this is all real. I'm not, I, I tend to go back and forth between the real and the imaginal, but this one is real. Uh, and I thought we might do a little demonstration of the fact that this translator body is real and you can learn how to do this. And if you were to learn how to do it, it might be useful to you. So as an example, um, let me imagine a situation here in which I remap, and I'm not going to imagine, I'm going to actually do it because I took the training at a neurological hospital and I learned how to do this. And because I'm a practicing artist, I learned how to do it to order. So I am now going to remap a part of my body in, in a sensual fashion to demonstrate that this really works. Um, now I'm going to put down this mic and switch to my lav mic, if you don't mind, because I need two hands. So um, if this works, yeah, thank you. So let's try remapping. What would be a good thing to do here? You, we have problems with, with sanity laws and pornography and things like that. So I can't take off any clothing, which means if I want to do something really stupidly erotic, I'm going to do it entirely by remapping my neurological body, okay? So I will remap for the purposes of our work here. I will remap my clitoris into the palm of my left hand. Okay, I'm going to do that now. Here we go. Ready? There it is. I can tell that there are a few people out there who don't believe <laughs> that I can do this. So how can I convince you? Well, I'll tell you what. I will masturbate to orgasm with the clitoris in the palm of my hand, okay? Now, for this, I will need help. <laughs> because I get off on noise, so in order for me to really make this work, I'm going to need your help in terms of making a lot of noise. Now, you can do this by pounding on the table, banging your spoons and forks, hitting on your glasses, not too hard, or yelling, screaming, anything you want. But the more noise you produce, the faster I'll be able to get off and the faster we can move on to something perhaps more scholarly. So. Wait, 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 wait. All right, we're going to do this in an organized and scholarly fashion. So on my count, let's have a rehearsal first. Let's see how much noise you can make, okay? On the count of three, everybody do it. You ready? One, two, three. Surely you can do better than that. 
I mean, come on, it's not raining in here tonight. I know that you people are enthusiastic. You can really make this work. All right, we're gonna have another rehearsal, okay? Are you with me on this? Everybody ready? Okay, on the count of three. Not another rehearsal. Are you ready? One, two, three! <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Okay, this is going to be terrific. I can feel a spirit moving in me now. All right. I, okay. Now, I'm on, on the count of three, we're all going to do this. You keep going until I get off, and I, I will do the very best I can to, to make this work. Oh, one, one other thing. Safe sex. I mean, you can't be too careful. Okay. All right. Are you folks ready? Everybody ready? All right, on the count of three. Here we go. Keep going until I get off. Here we go. One, two, three. good for you too? Uh, I, I have to tell you, well first I have to put it back. I, I, when the show is over I shake hands and it's very embarrassing. So, okay, then we By the way, um, I, I did this uh, at a medical conference in Melbourne <laughs> a few years ago, and they, uh, a, a doctor in the balcony asked me if the orgasm were real. Was real. And there are two things I have to say about that. One of them is, this is, this is a diegesis I'm, I'm performing. Um, and, and there's a certain, you know, there are certain considerations that have to be met. On the other hand, um, the, uh, this is real. The, the training is real. Being able to remap your body, that's real. The ability to have an orgasm by uh, physically involving odd parts of your body, that's all real. So go back to the question about 
whether or not the orgasm I have here on the stage is real, the answer is sometimes it's real and sometimes it's fake. <laughs> it's just like real life. <laughs> so, that having been said, I haven't been booed off the stage yet, so let me see where we are. Um, yeah. I need to go back to that. Um, um, many years ago, uh, I, was, I was a grad student at uh, UC San Diego. Wait, let me check the watch again. Oh, okay. Um, Many years ago at uh, UC San Diego, I was a graduate student there, and uh, in one memorable semester, my father died about halfway through, and I was absolutely uh, stunned and, uh, uh, and devastated. I, th I think uh, Judith was there when that happened, and uh, it completely took me out of action for a few days. I went into my room and, uh, and I sat on the bed and I just stared at the wall and I thought about all the things that I had been teaching my students. Things about the fact that identity is constructed, identity is always constructed. I thought about my relationship with my dad and with my mom and uh, how hard my transition had been on them at first and uh, how my father had never quite resolved the issues and he had died before we had an opportunity to do that and that chance was lost forever. And I sat on the bed thinking on the one hand about, about my classes, about identity as constructed, and on the other hand about dad's dead and I'll never be able to make, make it right with him. And I think I went around in a, in, a, in a stupor for about three weeks, just coming back. I'd go teach my classes, and then I'd come back to my room, and I'd sit in my room, and I'd stare at the wall, and then I'd go teach, and then I'd come back to my room, and I'd stare at the wall. I got no resolution. And then one night, I had a dream. And I dreamed that I was in some sort of bar-like place, a lot of green felt and, and those funny, crappy imitation uh, Tiffany lights, and some TV set showing a football game up on the wall. And I walked in, and there was my father. And he was dressed in his best blue pinstripe suit. He had his Phi Beta Kappa chain, um, and he, his glasses were shiny and polished, and he was freshly shaved and very happy, obviously. And he looked at me and he said, Sandy, come and watch football with me. And I, being the jerk that I am, said, Ah, Dad, you know I don't like football. And he said, okay, 
And he started to turn away. And at that moment, I realized that I was in a dream. And I realized what was going on. And I turned back to him and I said, Dad? And he looked at me and said, Yes. I said, This is a dream. He said, That's right. And I made that motion you make in a dream when you want to wake up. I couldn't control myself. I rose up off the ground, leaving the dream space, and my head hit the ceiling, and it hurt. And I floated back down to the ground. And my father was looking at me, smiling. And I said, this is a dream. He said, yes. I said, I'm not waking up. And he said, that's right. And being essentially slow at those things, it took me a moment to realize what a gift this was. And I looked at my father and I said, Dad, you and I are together in this dream. I'm not waking up. I'm actually here with you. God, this is an incredible gift. And he said, yes. And he opened his arms to me. And I ran to him. And I embraced him. He embraced me. And I don't think in my entire life I have ever felt anything so real. I could feel with the palms of my hands the texture of the fabric of his suit. I could feel with my cheek the smoothness of his freshly shaven cheek. And I could smell the fragrance of his aftershave lotion. And I drank it in and I drank it in. And I began to feel a peace spread over me and I said over his shoulder, Dad, Dad, I love you, Dad. And over my shoulder, he said, I love you too, son. <laughs> and I said, uh, Dad, <laughs> is it possible you haven't been paying close attention, I think? <laughs> and he said, son, identity is constructed. <laughs> and I woke up. I, I woke up crying. I, I was crying and crying. I cried my heart out there on the bed. And then it was over. I, I was better and I got up and I went back and I taught my classes and had a great time riding up and down on the elevator to the sociology floor. And, uh, and it was all great. And I guess that's the, uh, the penultimate uh, thing that I'd like to mention to you. The, uh, penultimate lesson that uh, I, I'd like to bring, which is um, it is possible to make it right with your folks, even a long time later. And yes, identity is constructed. And as, uh, as Anne said uh, earlier on, where are we here? Well, I'll close with the, 
with the words of my mentor, Donna Haraway. They were good enough for the beginning of this evening, afternoon, and they're good enough for now, which is, she said to me, Sandy, if you've got theory and you've got a problem with your theory, you've got a representational problem and you can't write it and you can't show it and you can't say it, the only thing left to do is sing it. So we'll see what we can do. She's got no truck with black lace brazils. She'd rather fuck with conservatives fears and hang around with the freaks and the queers because the lady is a trans she's hanging out in that liminal space intent on cloning a post-transsexual race she likes her art right up in your face because the lady is up you see that purple tea just right for me there's a wig that's my gig hates cultural guests need a good kick in the pants ouch that's right the lady is a trans. You see that simple identity. <laughs> Not destiny. This wasn't fate. And it's great. Our changing forms are all just part of the dance. And that's why the lady, two, four, six, eight, on a date. That's why the lady is a trans. Yeah.